Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. Max Minute, where we question who's going to drive the tanker in Mad Max to the Road Warrior one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 64, which begins with a rejected feral child leaving the garage, and it ends with Papagallo stating that he will be driving the tanker. We start off finishing up the sad, sad scene from yesterday. Yeah, with the poor, dejected little feral child who just doesn't understand why he can't go. And he starts off how he left off yesterday, walking backwards with his eyes on Max, but almost immediately this minute he turns around and starts walking away, but he does glance back at Max, probably hoping against hope that Max will have a sudden and inexplicable change of heart. Yes, and he doesn't. Nope. Although we get a quick view of Max, and Max is watching the child walk away. Neither of them, I really appreciate this, neither of them are trying to play the stereotypical macho man, I don't have any feelings. I'm not going to watch you walk away. I'm going to go about my business like this doesn't hurt. Neither of them are doing that. Both of them in turning around watching the other walk away is admitting to caring about the situation. Mm. (laughs) And I I really like that detail about Max. Because we talked about sometime this week, I can't quite remember when, that he does have an affinity for children. And he does feel bad about this. Mm -hmm. And maybe he wishes if he were a different man, then the feral child could join him and they could have a relationship and a future together. But he knows that he's not that man and he can't do it. Yeah, he doesn't exactly have a lifestyle that's conducive to the raising of children. Mm-hmm. I'm not really sure that that's it. I think that in this day and age, post-apocalypse, there is no more, this is not a proper environment for a child. <laughs> Pretty much now, anything goes. Yeah. I think the incorrect environment for a child is the emotional stability and attention that Max would be able to give to a surrogate son. Max knows he can't do it. Max probably also knows that it wouldn't be emotionally healthy for himself either. He's not ready to move on with raising a second family of sorts. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm not surprised that you're focused on Max's emotional reaction to this (laughs) because I focused primarily on the fact that Max lives a very dangerous lifestyle, going from place to place scavenging and marauding and constantly fighting. It's not the kind of situation where a kid can learn on the fly everything that they need to know because Max is a very individual scrapper. Like he watches out for number one because his number two dog can look out for himself. And Max probably looks at the idea of taking the feral child along as just extra worry. A burden. Exactly. That he doesn't want to deal with out in the wasteland because he has enough to worry about. I'm glad that you brought up the notion of the child being a burden. All children are burdens. It's their very nature. They are small and helpless, and they don't know how to do anything. They are, by nature, a burden. And as adults, we have to teach them and help them grow so that they are no longer a burden. But we do it anyways. Well, not us. (laughs) But people do it anyways because the emotional side of having a child outweighs the burden. For Max, it doesn't. See, I'm going right back to the emotional part. (laughs) Yeah. 
For Max, the emotional gratification does not outweigh the physical burden. Right. I can sympathize. So while I was prepping for this minute, which admittedly I was doing right before we started recording, <laughs> I found some pretty interesting resources for people to check out. So as you know, there are audiobooks on YouTube that people can find and listen to. And there's a channel on YouTube called Audiobooks for the Damned, which uploaded an unabridged audiobook for the Mad Max 2 novelization written by Terry Hayes. Yep. Oh, I'm going to have to listen to that. Crap, I have a line of things I have to listen to. So I can post a link on the Facebook group page. It runs about three and a quarter hours, so you can listen to the whole thing at like a slow day at work. And it's read by a guy named John Olson, who's... He's pretty good at it. I mean, he's no Sir Richard Attenborough. He's no Morgan Freeman, but he's got a fairly listenable register. It's a little bit on the higher end of the pitches that I like to listen to, but you know, it's still good. I'm not, I'm not doing it justice <laughs> as far as how listenable it is. But I also found, aside from the official novelization in audio form, I found a PDF of an unofficial novelization. It was written by a guy named Al Denelsbeck, who found a copy of the Mad Max to the Road Warrior novelization in French, and then using that version, he half translated, half adapted his own version in English. And I'll have a link to that in the listener page as well. Just if people want to give it a shot, there are some slight changes that Denelsbeck makes as far as how the story is perceived. I think he only refers to Max as the driver. I'll have a excerpt from his novelization further on in my notes. So if we want to hit that up later on in the minute, I can read that and kind of give everybody a sense of his writing style. All right. That sounds great. Yeah. So those are two cool things that you can check out. Yeah. I love audiobooks. I'm definitely going to listen to that one. Although I will admit hearing someone else read the audiobook kind of makes me want to read the audiobook because I don't know, I, I have been told in the past that I have a pretty good radio voice. So I feel like I could read an audiobook and have it be oh, pretty I, good. I definitely think you should get into voiceover work. <laughs> So from Max turning away from the feral child and going back to his work around the black on black, we get a wipe to a compound dweller standing at the flamethrower. This is the same one that we saw earlier after the terror montage. So it's still the same span of time that someone would stand on a turret. I think they're called watches. I like this movie's use of showing the flamethrower or the turret, either one, as a marker for the passage of time. More accurately, I think it's a marker for the passage of a little bit of time. Yeah. It's been dark out for quite some time since the nightmare torture scene. It's been dark out, so for a little while. So showing us the turrets shows us that, okay, we're leaving that scene for a little while. We're going to go do something else real quick, and then we're going to come back to it showing just a little passage of time. Okay. Springboarding off that idea of a little passage of time happening, the next shot we get is a very wide shot of the yard. We can see a lot of activity going on, but right in the middle next to the rig where the mechanic and his assistant and all of the other dwellers that are working on that are working on that, we <laughs> see the black-on-black -black drive around and start coming through the compound. This scene... <laughs> 
black on black is so quiet. We can't hear it at all. I thought for a while, I thought it was being pushed. Yeah. Instead of being driven of its own accord. And I kind of still stand by that because by sometime in minute 65, he starts the car and it's loud Mm -hmm. and it does not sound so good. (laughs) So it driving through the compound right now and not making any noise, it's suspicious to me. I was looking at the screenplay and there is a specific detail about Max taking plugs of some kind and muffling the exhaust pipes on the black on black to make it quieter as he drives. It's a tiny detail that they don't focus on in the movie proper. It's just mentioned in the screenplay. And when he gets outside of the compound, he really revs down on that engine and the plugs pop out because of the force behind them. Ah. So I feel like the black on black being rather quiet here a he's probably not even pressing on the gas that much he's probably just put the car in drive and then he's probably idling letting it roll forward of its own power yes because it's pretty tight in there right you don't necessarily want to be speeding through no because you've got people over to the right side of the screen that are prepping the vehicles to leave i did like the vw van in the back You've got a couple of the cars on the right side, and then the back there's like a turquoise. It kind of looks like a Scooby van, except (laughs) it's not painted up all like a Scooby van. Yeah. But then over to the left side, you can see that the curmudgeon is standing in the middle of the yard, and behind him you've got Arky and the gyro captain, and the gyro captain is holding a pig. So he succeeded where the curmudgeon oh, failed. Oh, interesting. And then further back, you can see big Rebecca standing by one of the, the towers. So everyone is going to and from and they all stop and watch as Max is driving the black on black through the compound to leave. It's, it's not a situation where he can just sneak out and have no one notice. No, definitely not. I certainly think Max is at least semi impervious to the judging glares of others. <laughs> in this situation he has to be because i'm sure he is getting plenty of judging glares which we get a little glimpse of in the next minute Mm -hmm. in fact we don't even need to wait until the next minute because in the very next shot Mm. we see zeta yes he's standing in the yard and he's watching max drive by and he's got this look on his face that he's just really unhappy about this development the fact that max is cutting out at this super important part of what they're trying to do. Yes. Setting aside the fact that he's not willing to help them, him leaving right now could also be a detriment to their own plan. So looking at it from that point of view, I think Zeta is a little bit justified in going to Papagallo and tattling on Max. That's an interesting word choice. Tattling. Well, I don't know. It feels... I use that word because it feels a little bit petty. Yeah. It feels a little bit like one brother is telling on the other brother to daddy. Hmm. I think I might be interpreting the tone a little differently because Zeta, seeing that Max is leaving, walks over to Papagallo and Papagallo is sitting in his tent next to that big old table where they made the deal. And he's just sitting in his brooding chair, mm-hmm. flipping, the ti- flipping the egg timer over and over in his hands. And Zeta comes up and crouches down next to him and says, you're letting him go? Well, let's keep his vehicle at least. And that statement there is super shady. Oh, yeah, it for is. For Zeta to say. It really is. Like, I understand that desperate times call 
call for desperate measures. And they are a very desperate people. And the Black on Black is an amazing vehicle that they would be very lucky to have in their arsenal. But at the same time, Papagallo just spent all of this time talking about how all the people in the compound, you know, there are people with dignity and folks that are better than the garbage out there in the horde and then zed is like well let's go back on our deal and steal his car and i'm like dude you're just invalidating what papagallo was all this talking about stuff yeah it it is pretty sketchy i do find it validating to myself i've had this opinion of the compound dwellers that even though they're coded as being the good guys Mm -hmm. they don't really act like it a yeah. lot. It's been mentioned a couple times yeah. in the listeners group that, yeah, they're technically our good guys, but they're not good people. Yeah, they're the good guys as opposed to the Marauder's bad guys. Yeah. Like, it's relative. Like, sure, they'll take someone's car, but they won't necessarily string someone up on a torture pole and break their legs. That does make me wonder, if they had a captive, what would they do with the captive? You know what I mean? I know what you mean, but at the same time, I really don't see the compound dwellers taking captives. Well, we can use Max as an example. They assumed, when they first encountered Max, they assumed that he was a marauder. Yeah, but their plan was to take him, take his vehicle, and then kick him out of the compound. Yeah, okay. So, essentially killing him. I see it more as a let nature decide. Kind of like when... Yeah. Kind of like when a Disney hero lets a villain fall off a cliff. Yes. You know? Like, they didn't perform the act. They just didn't stop it. Yeah. Which helps them retain some innocence in the situation and be the hero. Yeah. Even though you can be the hero and still kill people. You just have to do it for the right reason. <laughs> like, it's not like heroes never kill people. Yeah. Well, I mean, Disney owns Marvel now, and Disney has the Netflix Punisher series Ooh. coming out, and he kills people left and right. Yes. Is he really designated a hero, though? He's more of a anti-hero, I think. I think so. I just hope, and this is a slight digression, in the comics... The Punisher has, like, a van, and it's, like, the Punisher mobile, but it's also, like, just a panel van. (laughs) And I really hope they inject that into the Netflix series. Well, does he live in the van in the comics? That I don't know. Although the mention of living in a van makes me think of Chris Farley. Down by the river. You can just imagine, like, Chris Farley as the Punisher. Big overweight guy with the skull on his (laughs) t-shirt. That's awful. Living in a van down Down by the the river. river. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that tangent got weird. Mm. Anyway, Papagallo looks at Zeta after the suggestion of let's keep his vehicle at least. And Papagallo says he fulfilled his contract. He's an honorable man. Papagallo is kind of creepily calm. Yeah. In these few lines, it's a little weird. It's almost like he took a hit of something Uh, to mellow out. After, like, the altercation and the intensity of the last scene, he needed to calm down. Yeah. So he has a little help. (laughs) That actually Um, explains this entire scene. There is a clip from the TV show Family Matters that I saw on YouTube the other day because I was doing prep work for the Die Hard Minute. Uh Uh-huh. So if you guys haven't checked out the Die Hard Minute, we are part of a team of people who are covering that movie. I know I've mentioned it before, so it's nothing new to people who've been listening this whole time, but we covered one week, I think, either week five or six, somewhere in that range, and then 
our second week is minutes 101 through 105. Mm. And we talk a lot about Reginald Val Johnson and his character of Al Powell. So I was looking up Reginald Val Johnson clips on YouTube. And the clip in question was him as Carl Winslow standing in his driveway with Jaleel White playing Steve Urkel and Reginald Val Johnson's character had this thing he would say. He would say, three, two, one, one, two, three, what the heck is bothering me? And that's his mantra to calm down. And he would turn away from Jaleel White, say it, take a deep breath, turn back, see Jaleel White's character standing there, turn away, and then repeat his mantra again, <laughs> trying to calm down. And so I can just see Papa Gallo limping back to the tent and being like, three, two, one, one, two, three, what the heck is bothering me? <laughs> Taking a deep breath and then just slowly calming himself down as he sits there. And, or maybe the uh, hourglass is kind of a... Oh, what's it called when an object is like a comfort object? I was going to call it like a fidget spinner, but yeah. I think it's a, using the inception term, totem a totem. Yeah, a totem. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. Some way to keep your hands occupied to focus your energy and calm down a bit. Because, yeah, he does seem very mellow in this instance. I really like the idea of the hourglass being a totem. As opposed to him, like, taking a rag that's soaked in something and just taking a deep breath of it. Uh, yeah. Taking a hit of something. <laughs> <laughs> I find it really interesting that Papagallo is so quick to defend Max to Zeta after he spent the last couple of minutes berating Max about him being no better than the Marauders, just a piece of garbage drifting in the wind. I was bothered by that too. This flip, this sudden flip. Then I was looking back at my notes. During that scene, I noted that the curmudgeon was playing good cop while Papagallo was playing bad cop. Yeah. Perhaps he was dramatizing the opinions that he did hold, but making them bigger so that he can play bad cop to curmudgeon's good cop okay. for effect. I can see that. So maybe he doesn't feel quite as passionately or aggressively about it as he presented to Max. Hmm, that makes sense. So with that line of questioning closed, Zeta changes the subject and says, okay, so who's going to drive the tanker? And the whole time that Zeta's been talking to Papagallo, these two lines of dialogue, it's not like it's been that long. <laughs> Papagallo has been focused on that hourglass. And so when Zeta asks who's going to drive the tanker, Papagallo kind of rolls his head over to look at Zeta and says, I am. As if it was a dumb question. <laughs> like, who else would drive the tanker? And it kind of makes me believe that the plan before they sent the scouts out was that the scouts would find the tanker, Papagallo would drive the tanker, or something to that effect. That also makes me think maybe that's why they wanted so bad for Max to join them and mm -hmm. drive the tanker, because the driver of the tanker almost 100% is not going to survive. And they know that. They definitely know that the tanker is going to have the biggest target for people chasing it. And so where the tanker possesses the largest risk factor, mm -hmm. having Papagallo drive the tanker poses the most risk to the hierarchy of the compound. I don't recall. Have we talked about before how long they've had this particular plan of escape? We have discussed it in the past. I don't... Is it a new plan or is it an old plan that they've been preparing for this whole time? I don't think we came to a consensus on that idea. No, I think it's too hard to tell. They end up stationing people physically on the tanker, which we see them pre preparing for. The welding up on top of the tanker was putting a lookout point up on top of the like tanker. a fortified position. Yeah. 
Yeah. So they know that people, aside from the driver, are going to be on the tanker. And if the driver is near 100% chance of not surviving, then uh, I would guess the people also on the tanker also have very little chance of surviving. So they sent their best people, their most valuable people, yeah, knowing that they probably would not survive. I think they were able to acknowledge that the people on the tanker were forming, I don't know, some kind of suicide squad. <laughs> but I think they still held on to the hope that they would survive. Mm -hmm. That this wouldn't be a one-way trip for them. That, yeah, it would be hard to fight off all of the marauders, but... I'm willing to bet a lot of them had hope that they'd be able to do it. And so they put their best fighters on the rig, and they put the rest of the people in the civilian convoy. I agree with everything you just said, but with a twist. I think they put their best people on the tanker, or with the tanker, and accompanying vehicles to distract the marauders for long enough to give the civilians enough time to get away safely. Oh, absolutely. I yeah, that's... I don't think that they really had much hope of surviving. Well, I don't think they ever intended on the civilian convoy to stay with the tanker. No, I'm no. pretty sure the tanker was always a distraction. Yeah. All right, yeah, the way you said it, it made it sound like it was some sort of fresh revelation. No. Okay, I probably wasn't listening that well anyway. No, you probably weren't. I don't think I have anything else. Just Max in the bus gate, mm -hmm. which confused the crap out of me. How so? So Max in the bus gate, especially the way that we have the minutes cut up. So at the very end of this minute, we get a view of Max driving the bus. So I got a little confused about why is Max in the bus? Oh, gotcha. Okay. <laughs> Until uh, the next minute started. I'm like, oh, that's right. The bus is the gate and he is moving the gate. Yeah. Which we'll definitely talk more about. Oh, for sure. Tomorrow. So do you want to hear how Al Denelsbeck wrote this scene in his unofficial novelization? I sure do. Okay. This is from the unofficial Mad Max to the Road Warrior novelization by some guy on the internet named Al Denelsbeck. And this is how he writes the scene that we just talked about. Zeta, the second-in-command within the compound, heard the unfamiliar growl of an engine that was not one of their own coming from within the compound. Through long exposure and the necessity of picking up on anything that didn't seem right, he and nearly everyone else knew exactly what each vehicle that they possessed sounded like. This one was easy to distinguish as well, since it was an eight-cylinder. Seeking the source, he found the interceptor rolling slowly towards the gate, the driver behind the wheel. Several others in the compound watched it roll by with more than idle curiosity. Frowning, Zeta sought out Papagallo, eventually finding him in the public hall, the tent they used for meetings where they'd made the deal with the driver to deliver the truck. Their leader had his leg propped up and was staring fixedly at a small egg timer hourglass in his hand. As the sand ran almost out of the top bell of the hourglass, he turned it over starting the process all over again. You're letting him go, Zeta said, almost an accusation. It was clearly against his own better judgment and against what they'd discussed when they had hashed out various plans of action not long ago. Papagallo, however, said nothing, not bothering to look up from the hourglass. It was a true statement, after all. He appeared engrossed in his own thoughts, something rarely seen from the alert and responsive leader. Well, let's keep his vehicle, at least, Zeta asserted. Papagallo finally turned to look at him, calmly. He fulfilled his contract, the weathered man pointed out. He's an an honorable man. Zeta took this to mean that something had occurred between the two, though he had little idea of what. He also knew that their leader was capable of being convincing when he needed to. There were many reasons why he had held the position that he did. Whatever had happened, Papagallo was convinced that this was the best outcome. 
and at this point in time, there were more pressing concerns than finding out just what transpired. Okay, so who's going to drive the tanker, he asked. Papagallo's look of apparent surprise was a little too transparent this time. I am, he said, as if there could be little doubt. Zeta stared at him, inviting further comment, contemplating a protest. But their leader had turned his attention immediately back to the hourglass, virtually dismissing the topic from discussion. He turned the relic over again, never letting the time run out. Uh-huh. So in that interpretation, the leadership of the compound had discussed not letting Max go, even though he had fulfilled his contract. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Devious. Very devious. Mm-hmm. I like the little bit at the end, never letting time run out. It draws deeper meaning from the fact that he's playing with a an hourglass. Yeah, and it is something that you can see in this minute that Papagallo is watching the sands go through that hourglass and right before the top end empties, he'll flip it over. Yes. I think it's an apt metaphor for this movie mm-hmm. that they are constantly in situations where time is running out and just as soon as that top hourglass is about to empty, something happens where they're able to flip that hourglass and gain just a little bit more time. I really like that. That was the one that was translated from French and changed a little bit? Yeah, that okay. was the one that started off as the official novelization and then was reinterpreted by the author and is therefore a not officially sanctioned or recognized version of the story. Okay. But still pretty good, I yeah. thought. Yeah. So, like I said before, a link to that will be on the Facebook page. A link to the unabridged official audiobook is going to be on the listeners page. And we are going to wrap up for today. We are going to pick up tomorrow with Max in the bus gate, opening it up. It'll be our Friday episode. So we'll have a guest on there. You can look forward to that. And we hope to have you back for that. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 6 of the Road Warrior. We'll see you tomorrow.